Young man, if you spill those new sugar smacks, you're fired. And see how well camels are clean with your throat. Pack after pack, week after week. But unless something is done and done quickly, man as the dominant species of life on Earth will be extinct. Unbelievable, fantastic, but I tell you it could happen. So, how are we doing, guys? I'm Lawrence Rosenberg, host of the Alpha Human Podcast, and our guest today is Jeff Wu. Jeff is the CEO and co-founder of Human, a Silicon Valley-based cutting-edge nutrition company that is absolutely obsessed with helping people get to the top of their field, set a new world record, and cultivate a long, healthy life. Jeff is also a Stanford-trained computer scientist and self-proclaimed biohacker. He's an expert in nootropics, uh, smart drugs and smart supplements. He's also an expert in the field of fasting, ketosis, the ketogenic diet. He's the creator of the world's first drinkable ketone ester, and he's the host of the Health Via Modern Nutrition podcast. Jeff, welcome to the show. Lawrence, thank you so much for the very kind introduction. Glad to be on the program. <laughs> my pleasure, my pleasure. Um, by the way, um, the Health Via Nutrition, uh, that, that's, the, that's an act, is that the way that you describe the company and then the acronym is HUMAN, H-V-M-N, but it's pronounced HUMAN? We pronounce it by the acronym, so we actually pronounce it H-V-M-N. It's oh. a little bit more clear. And it's kind of the cool future way of how people spell in the future. No, no vowels. Yeah. Now that, okay. Very interesting. So, uh, thanks for, uh, thanks for clearing that up for me. So I got to say, um, you know, it's, it's an interesting dichotomy being the founder of a nutrition business and being also a huge believer in feeding the body and the mind with the right types of foods and supplements, whilst also being a believer in the enormous benefit of taking in no food and no nutrition or supplements for extended periods of time if we're talking about fasting. Well, yeah, yeah, 100%. I think that it might be Zen or philosophical, but the things you do and the things you don't do are really two sides of the same coin. Um, if you are sitting, that is a, essentially a form of physical practice. It's uh, if you sit on your butt for 12 hours a day, that's essentially what you're exercising your muscles. They get attuned to and accustomed to. So that's obviously what we don't really think about as exercising, but by the fact of not exercising, you are forcing us action. And I think the same thing applies to nutrition. Um, the fact that you can consume things is just as interesting and as important as the pause, the non-consumption of things. So to me, it's just uh, two ways of attacking the same problem. Absolutely. Very, um, very interesting. So I, so I have to ask because a, a lot of what, your, um, of what your company is about when it comes to the type of nutrition or the type of foods we should be feeding ourselves, as well as a lot of your own personal experiences, 
uh, really kind of uh, centers potentially, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, around ketosis. Uh, and, um, and it's or certainly a major component of what you do personally in your personal uh, uh, health practice for, for yourself, uh, as well as what you preach and, and where your company kind of steps into the game with some really unique uh, supplements. But can you explain your fascination with ketosis and also ketogenic nutrition? And I mean, what it does and, and why it works? Sure. So it might be helpful just to define ketosis for folks who might just be being introduced to the topic. So ketosis is a state of metabolism where your body is burning its own fat stores and converting that fat into a form of energy called ketones. And that ketones is produced by your liver. And this usually happens when your body is restricting carbohydrates. So you cut out sugar, carbs, your body's essentially forced to be in this fat burning mode. And this fat burning mode uh, is essentially your body using fat and ketones as energy. And I, I think the genesis for me at least was I would say very different from how most people enter uh, into ketosis or get interested in the topic. So four or five years ago, I was interested in cognitive performance. And one of the interesting pieces of literature was showing that fasting or, or non-eating was one of the most reliable ways to generate new neurons, neurogenesis. And that's kind of counterintuitive and, and it was in the sense that if you don't eat, you can actually somehow boost performance. Mm. Um, but as I dug into the literature, uh, there's a, a, such a wealth of new research and data around how these thoughtful positive consumption is not even really a positive consumption fasting. It's really just what normal state should be. If you think about what's the standard Western or standard American diet is, it's essentially overconsumption. So to me, again, it's what is your perspective? Um, and to me, ketosis should be a natural state of metabolism that our bodies enter, uh, on a somewhat regular basis. Whereas in the standard Western diet, especially in the diet over the last 50, 100 years of processed industrialized foods, we never are in a state of ketosis because we're always one over consuming and two eating very heavily processed carbohydrates. So to me, I think the one, two punch of why ketosis was an interesting metabolic state was one, just that initial inkling of uh, it being interested in, in cognitive performance. Mm -hmm. and, uh, and, and that's in reference to perhaps a lot of people getting interested in ketosis for weight management or weight loss. Um, my goals were very much on the enhancement side of things. But I think, again, as you dive more into the literature, all these things kind of come full circle where enhancement is bring a state from perhaps normal states to enhanced states and medicine or therapeutics is bringing someone from a deficient state to a normal state, but it's the same vector, right? You just bring someone from one end of the spectrum to the other side of the spectrum. So I see it the same, as the same thing. Um, so for me, ketosis is interesting from a performance perspective, especially in cognition. And as you dive deeper and deeper into the literature, uh, there was interesting performance benefits for athletic use cases, for endurance use cases, especially with exogenous ketones like the ketone ester that I'm sure we'll, we'll talk about in a little bit, mm -hmm. as well as ketosis being very interesting and implicated in, um, in some of the chronic dis uh, diseases that are really uh, pernicious to our society. And it's, I think especially within the context of 
COVID-19, one of the biggest comorbidities with uh, COVID-19 and, and, and death is yeah. insulin resistance, diabetes, uh, poor metabolic health. And ketosis is kind of like the flip side of that. Being able to go into a state of ketosis is a sign of metabolic flexibility. So to me, again, just wrapping my thoughts here, ketosis was very central in what I saw in uh, amongst a, a number of fields from sports performance on the enhancement or biohacking side, as well as therapeutic research around diseases like chronic diseases, as well as uh, the burgeoning new field around longevity anti-aging research. And ketosis and its pathways was central to all of these different fields of discipline. So to me, uh, I, I don't think of keto ketogenic diet ketosis as some magical thing. It, it, to me, it's just a very interesting scientific phenomenon in our physiology. And we need to understand how to best manipulate and exploit that metabolic state for our individual use cases. So there's pros and cons for it, and we can talk about the nuances. Mm -hmm. um, but the fact that it's so central to so many interesting parts of human performance and human longevity and human health, uh, it's a very interesting place to start building knowledge and building products and building services around it. Yeah, I, you know, you, you know, you mentioned when you remove carbs, you, you remove sugar, um, processed foods are, you know, full of, uh, full of the, pr uh, the products of industrialized uh, agriculture and food manufacturing. Uh, but when you remove all of that, you're left, I mean, if we're talking macronutrients, you're left with two other macronutrients, right? You're left with protein, you're left with fats. Yep. Um, and you start to get back to where we were historically as a species. Uh, obviously, you, you, know, you couldn't go and, and buy a loaf of bread uh, 12,000 years ago prior to the advent of agriculture. So um, we were, as you mentioned, in the natural state of ketosis. And although it's not magic, it's, it, you know, it, it's very scientific. The body adopted to be able to use that, uh, you know, that substrate and use it uh, because we would probably go days without food, which probably uh, gets us to the point where uh, you, you being a big proponent of fasting and how you came upon ketosis and you can generate these neurons. You know, the, the, the key is that if you're going to remove what was not in our diet 12,000 years ago and what's left, you know, is fat and protein, but you know, there's, there's, a, there's a different camps over there about how much protein you should have in your diet, how much fat should you have in your diet. And I, I think I want to get into that with you in a, in a bit, but if we're talking about fasting, um, what I've been curious about for quite some time is whether the magic of fasting is that, we're producing ketones or are there other things at play as well that give the body enormous power to heal itself? Like maybe the ejecting of, of dead or zombie cells through autophagy and maybe other processes that the body undergoes when we are not consuming calories. Uh, yeah, that's actually just an open field of inquiry. So that's an open field of science that is being determined now. So here's my thoughts about fasting and, and potentially the differences or overlaps with the presence of ketos, keto, ketogenic diet ketosis. Okay. So I, my thinking here is that I think fasting works and, and it's primarily mediated through ketosis. So I think there's a massive overlap of 
being in a ketogenic state and with the benefit of fasting. However, do I think that there is benefit for calorie restriction and which is basically 100% calorie restriction, which is basically fasting. There is probably something there that is beneficial for acute bouts of zero calorie consumption. But um, I think the thing with autophagy is that there's no magic threshold that we've been able to identify or a magic biomarker that shows when something is an autophagy, right? If you actually look at the system, like I think that the autophagy is sort of a magic umbrella term. Uh, but if you, if you look at, uh, but all of our cells, we have trillions of cells and some cells are in a catabolic state and some cells are in an anabolic state. Some are building up and some are being torn down. Right. So autophagy describes perhaps a broad pattern of what our bodies are going through. It, it, clearly there is breakdown of this, you know, damaged organelles, uh, but it's not very precise. Um, so there's an open inquiry exactly what kind of threshold of calorie restriction induces like a level of autophagy you want. I think there's a sub question around, is there tissue specificity for autophagy? Meaning that, for example, your lean muscle tissue is going to break down or go into autophagy at a different rate than, for example, your neurons or your liver or your kidney, right? Like all these different cells have different metabolisms in of itself. So I think when people have that broad stroke, is autophagy on or off when you're fasting? It's, I would say directionally correct that if you are in a calorie restricted state or a ketogenic state, you're likely to trigger metabolic pathways that drive autophagy or signal autophagy. Um, so I think that's just a little bit more precise way to talk about it. Um, so to me, it's like a ketogenic diet versus fasting, what you're really uh, playing around with is uh, sort of deletion of a macronutrient, you're leaving out carbohydrate, and potentially there's a deletion of, uh, and you're, you're reducing the carbohydrates. Uh, and I think the only other dimension that you can manipulate your diet is time, right? So fasting is essentially a time manipulation. Ketogenic diet is a macro uh, uh, manipulation which is a second dimension of how you can manipulate a diet. And then the third uh, dimension you can manipulate a diet is the amount of something you can consume, right? You're, you can, can you be uh, restricting calories? Um, I think when you have exogenous ketones or ketone esters, that adds like an interesting research tool at the very least of how you can manipulate and study this fact. I think that's where ketone, uh, that's where we're working with a lot of researchers and scientists actually, because to study ketones, you would have to put people through a ketogenic diet. Right. But what if you could have people on a normal diet and then you add ketones exogenously, could you replicate the benefit of a ketogenic diet or of fasting? And that research is being unpacked in, 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 in now. And I think what the literature seems to say is that ketones definitely are a powerful metabolic signal uh, they're not just like a fuel for the cells. They actually signal uh, how the DNA unfolds. They signal longevity pathways. They signal long, uh, you know, things like FOXR3, uh, which are longevity uh, genes. Mm -hmm. um, so that is a good signal or a good piece of evidence where the ketones themselves are definitely something interesting and special in of themselves. So, I, you know, that's, that's interesting. I, I, I want to talk a bit more about 
exogenous ketones um, in a moment because that's that brings up a whole uh, another level of very you know very interesting uh, possibilities. Yeah. Um, I guess one of the things I would um, you know I'd like to delve into is the whole concept of biohacking because that's where ketone esters play a role um, as well as some of the other things you've done in, in your history. You know, again, you're a self-proclaimed biohacker, right? And, um, you know, fasting and ketosis is a big part of that, of that, of, well, of today's biohacking movement, I think. Um, and the first time I ever even heard of the term biohacking was in stumbling upon uh, Dave Asprey's blog, Bulletproof Executive, right? Mm -hmm. In like 2014 or 2015. But um, as I delved, as I really delved deeper into that concept, um, it turns out biohacking's been around, you know, as an idea at least since 1988, perhaps, uh, where it was discussed in an article in the Washington Post called "Playing God in Your Basement," uh, where they talked about the the rise of the biohacker and bathtub biology and predicting that they predicted that computer hackers. Um, would fuse software with biotech to craft new models of proteins and enzymes and organic chemicals. So, you know, it's interesting that you're trained as a computer scientist. Um, and, you know, also something that, you know, I mean, your, you know, your company uh, is based in Silicon Valley. That's not the, on the surface, it's not the likely can. That's not the likely candidate uh, city for a nutrition company. Uh, but then, when you start to think about Silicon Valley, um, if you, when you start to think about those who are being very productive in the tech world and kind of leaning towards, you know, the concept of biohacking and how it is uh, very relatable to systems and, and software, uh, then it starts to make sense. But I guess um, I'd like to hear from. I'd like to hear it from you. Um, what inspired you to get into what's known? What is, first of all, what is biohacking? And then what inspired you to get involved in it? Sure. Uh, so maybe that's, I want to unpack the biohacking term first. I think there's just a number of different interesting subgroups of what, that share the term biohacker, right? So I would say that there are, you know, I have good friends who are genetically engineering, you know, using CRISPR or whatnot to make glowing yeast for beer production, right? Or they're injecting uh, myosin-altered uh, genes into their arm to see if they can grow their muscle uh, through gene editing, right? And I think yeah. that's definitely a sphere of biohacking. I would say that there's also biohackers that are more of like the grinder type, which install you know, on the basic side, like magnets into their fingertips to sort of induce like a sixth sense of detecting magnetism. Um, or they're installing, uh, uh, I had, uh, you know, this, this guy who's kind of like a digital, like a biohacker artist who installed a antenna that he kind of surgically into his skull and that would detect the wavelength of light that his antenna was focusing on and would vibrate at different uh, intensities so he could, feel colors so that's like a grinder kind of mechanical fusion of biology and uh, machine and then I would say that my ilk of biohacker if that's the way to talk about it is 
the way I think about it is primarily from uh, the, the definition I like to use is that I'm just simply taking a systems engineering approach to human performance. And what I mean by that is I just take quantitative measurable uh, inputs and outputs of my body, my system. And there's certain, and these quantitative measures can be optimized uh, and engineered and pushed in certain directions. So for example, I like, like defining a car, right? There's attributes of a car that we all know. Uh, how fast does it go? The mileage per gallon, uh, is it safe? Um, but cars can perform very, very differently. Like a Model T from the, you know, the Ford, the initial Ford car is a car. The latest Tesla is a car, but the attributes are very, very different. Mm-hmm. Um, and for me, that's car engineering was, was, was evolved to produce a better version of a car. And I think we're at the cusp here with my style or approach to, towards biohacking, which is like, can we finally apply formal engineering techniques towards driving human performance in a way that uh, we want? Um, so I think um, nutrition is one of the most common inputs into the human system that can drive particular outputs. So I think that's like a very attractive or, or maybe not the word attractive, but a very tractable first place to start in terms of engineering a better performance. So to me, biohacking is kind of like a very nascent community or level of rigor of what I think the space will evolve to. Just like I, you, in the 70s and 80s, there was a homebrew computing club and these, these kids basically like kids like Steve Jobs are tinkering with silicon parts and then building computers and seeing what they could do. Um, they, they spawned an entire new industry and a new field of inquiry around computer engineering. And you have subdomains of machine learning experts, data scientists, software engineers. I think you'll see the same thing with biohackers, just really spawning human, human performance engineers, right? And I think there's aspects of that with like personal trainers, dietitians, all of that, I think are kind of in the same sphere. But can we kind of unify this holistically with a more of a engineering mindset a more of a quantitative numeric mindset? That's a kind of the approach that I'm advocating for and, 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 and thinking about. Right. So, I mean, I mean, that's, that's powerful because I mean, you start to, I mean, for the average person um, to think about the, the fusion of man and machine, it's science fiction. Yep. Uh, in Silicon Valley, you might have uh, friends or acquaintances that are doing some really wild things like putting the antenna right in, in you know, yeah. Well, um, or you know, maybe something more mundane like putting chips um, in order to open doors, right? Um, and, and doing that kind of thing. But but that that element for most people is is just not something they they would number one consider doing or even even realize is feasible. Then you have um, the merging of um, of genetics, right? Uh, the synthetic, sorry, the 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 creation of synthetic biology, uh, and how that synthetic bio- biology can be fused with our own to maybe one day be able to withstand um, living on another planet. 
again, science fiction. Um, but actually taking place, it's just that most people don't realize that. Yeah. Um, and then, you know, you have something that is far more relatable to, um, you know, most people, which is I can be a biohacker by simply changing my diet, using different supplements and having an incredible increase in quality of life performance because, you know, I'm, I'm taking a hack, right? I'm, I'm finding a shortcut or a new route to feeling great. Um, so it's, it's powerful stuff, but how would you say that today's biohacking is different from what it was or what was going on maybe a decade or two ago? Like, you know, there's, I'd love to hear your, your perspective on how is, how's today's biohacker uh, different? The technology has evolved. Um, the fact that we have medical grade devices that can be tracking our glucose continuously. For example, you can have a consumer grade continuous glucose monitor that tracks your blood sugar. Uh, you can have wearables, rings, like, you know, there's a number of these vendors mm -hmm. that let you track your, track your heart rate variability, that tracks your sleep. Um, and there's different groups working on more and more of these devices that track these blood markers and these performance markers that are going to be ubiquitous in the coming years. Um, that is the big difference where, again, for me, it's about engineering. And what engineers say is that if you can't measure something, how can you optimize it? Well, now you can measure a lot more dang things as opposed to 10 years ago. So that's the biggest difference. For example, I can show you with my uh, finger stick where my blood sugar is or where my blood ketones are after a ketogenic diet or after fasting or after a ketone ester drink. Um, and that kind of technology, that kind of tools just wasn't widely available 10, 20 years ago. So, okay, absolutely. And um, I guess, you know, cause you, I mean, you mentioned something that I've been thinking about for a while, but it's like, you know, with, with a hack that allows you to manipulate the myostatin gene, um, you're starting to get into territory where, you know, currently, I mean, that changes the game for um, sports alone. Um, if people can start manipulating the amount, the density of their, their muscle tissue, and it's undetectable, um, for now anyway, I mean, what is that going to mean for, right? For sports, uh, but, but also, I mean, and then there's, it's the cosmetic. I mean, we've all seen those, those genetically altered cows, those big blue bell cows. They look, they look like Mr. Olympia, right? They're bigger than Mr. Olympia. <laughs> I mean, it's, it's, it's absolutely unbelievable, but we don't have to go that far to experience at least, I mean, from my, um, you know, from my own, um, playing around with with ketones over the past four years, I, uh, I, you know, I had gotten into a state where I almost felt superhuman. My mind felt superhuman. My ability to to do incredible things on only four hours sleep, um, the ability to recall um, words and ideas and concepts, and the ability to speak just at a very high level without even having to think about my next word. Um, yeah was 
absolutely incredible when I, when I had discovered that. So that's a hack that is, it's not expensive, it's not undoable, it's open to everybody. And your company actually is helping people achieve this kind of thing. So that leads me into wanting to know a bit more about your, I mean, because part of this show is about, you know, I want to inspire others. I want to bring on those who can bring new knowledge, new ideas, uh, mavericks, innovators that can optimize people's lives and health and mindset. Um, and a lot of that inspiration I look to uh, for myself and also to share with other people comes from individuals like yourself that start a company like the one you've started. So I'd love to hear about your entrepreneurial journey. I understand that you sold your first company, um, GlassMap, I believe, to, to Groupon. Then you started a nootropics company, which again are for the uninitiated or smart drugs or smart supplements. Um, that was called Nutribox, I believe. And then over the past few years, you've built, uh, you've built human. So tell, please yeah. tell us. So yeah, Nutribox evolved into HBMN. Yeah. So where to begin? I think, um, yeah, I think just in this day and age, it's, uh, I think we're all creatives at some level, right? Like you're creating a podcast and creating a community. And I think one of the best vehicles to create the change you want to see in the world is through a community or through a startup or a, a new business. Those are just, I think that's just kind of how the game works in this capitalistic society now. Mm-hmm. Um, so my first entrepreneurial venture was building a iPhone app to let you track your friends on a map. And this was back circa two, 2011, right? So very, very early iPhone days. And, uh, like the location kit was very, very raw for the APIs for all the iPhones. And then if you remember back in those days, this is like really battery intensive, like have your map on all the time. Like you would just kill your battery. Um, so that was a problem we were trying to solve. Okay. Can we basically have a really battery efficient location tracking app? Um, and me and a couple of buddies from the Stanford double E and CS programs, we decided to just go and build an app. It seemed like all like, you know, it, it was just like a magical time, I would say at Stanford in Silicon Valley where the Instagram founders were a couple years older than us. Um, the Snapchat founders were like a year on, under us, just like a lot of people were just like making apps. And I think we were so arrogant at the time because we were building like operating systems and networking routers for our classes and it's like, oh, we could definitely build a freaking app. And then, then, then you just realize that building software for real people is, is actually much, much harder than doing a, a program for a problem set. Um, but that was the early taste, um, was building this little company while we're seniors in the computer science program. And then we got funded by this startup investor group called Y Combinator uh, before we graduated. And it was like, you know, they gave us $170,000 for the three of us to start this company. And at the time when we were like 21 and 22, it seemed like a ridiculous amount, infinite amount of money at the time. Um, and it's like, okay, I guess we're doing this. Um, and it was kind of a, kind of a haphazard choice because I had a choice to either go work at Facebook, uh, finish my master's degree at at Stanford or do a PhD in computer science at Princeton or do this random 
an app startup. And it just seemed like, oh, we got $170,000. You might as well get it, give it a swing. Um, okay. We end up doing that. And uh, you just learn a lot by just like being out in the real world. Just like no one really giving a crap about what you're doing um, until you, you actually solve problems for people. And I think you just learn some of these like reality checks going from the ivory tower of academia and Stanford to like, okay, in the real world, no one cares unless you actually do something valuable for others. And I think that was just a good little mini MBA, if you will, around making sure you just actually listen to your users, your customers, actually solve people's problems and not just solve problems for your own ego, right? Um, and long story short, uh, sold that company to Groupon in 2013. And that gave me a little bit of time to think about what problems I wanted to work on next. And at the time, I remember all my friends at the CS programs were making robots better, making machine learning algorithms better, or making robots better, all, all the stuff. And, but, that, that, but, but it was also like, kind of like, that's a fancy way of saying they're also helping and helping in you know, the big companies like help you click more ads, right? Like that was kind of the business model at the time. It just didn't seem that interesting to me. Okay. Um, and I wanted to work on something more personal, right? Like we're all humans. Why can't we be better? Why can't I work on making humans better? And it was just very kind of selfish at the time. Just like, Hey, I want to just be more productive and like just be even more type A um how to you know get more done and it was just like this interesting journey through the biohacking community all the random reddits subreddits where people are just trading weird research chemical tips and doing all these self-experimentations um and you know that was just an interesting opportunity there where i just realized that more people were experimenting with this stuff circa 2014 yeah 2014 right. um and I was trying to like source some of this stuff myself, but it's really hard to get really high grade pure ingredients for lab tested. You know, I was just ordering bags of white powder from Alibaba. There are research chemicals for some of the stuff. <laughs> just making my own. Um, I was like, hey, this has got to be just a more clean way to do it. So we just made our own in a validated third party, you know, certified GMP lab, all of that good stuff. And just like learn how to manufacture stuff. And then, uh, Going from there, slowly building up a community and audience. Um, you know, we had, I remember, you know, maybe six, seven months in, me and my partner, Michael, we were doing $80,000 a month in sales. And we're like, whoa, this is like a real business now. Like, we were just like kind of running this as like a hobby, if you will. Just like, hey, we want, we want, we want these nootropics for ourselves. Now, like, if we do 80 times 12, that's like almost a million dollars a year of revenue. It's like, whoa, like, this is, could be a real thing. Um, and that's when we really started scaling up and, 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 and all the whole time, I was just getting more and more interested in the science side because I think I'm naturally skeptical. And I remember like, I think the first time just getting the space, it just like didn't make sense that there, there to be like obvious free lunches, right? There's always this sense of what's the catch and it is, it's just, BS, is there a good data behind this? And a lot of things don't have good data behind it. And I think that's what made some of the things that do have good robust data really, really exciting. So that's kind of the full journey there. And then I think you fast forward 
we partnered with uh, Oxford researchers who had developed a ketone ester as part of a DARPA program in the early 2000s. And we just got really, really sophisticated and deep in, 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 from kind of a biohacking, kind of hobbyist, amateur perspective into really partnering, working with legitimate world authorities in biotechnology and human physiology to produce some really outstanding products. So, okay. Um, so you mentioned, so there's something I want to, I want to touch on there. So first of all, you, so you were, you know, ordering like, you know, random uh, powders, uh, uh, well, not random powders, but you are in powders. Yeah, not quite random, but just like powders. From, yeah, right. From yeah, from uh, from Alibaba, and you're getting these powders. You're making pills. Yeah. You're making, you're making your own supplements. Yeah. Um, and these supplements uh, would be to help uh, with cognition. I'm assuming, right? So you know, so so these would be uh, the types of supplements that would optimize. And it's a gray area. Do some have drug-like reactions? Do some not? What are the active ingredients? But they're, you know, you're hoping that in high enough dosages, um, they're going to sharpen your mind and give you, uh, you know, powerful uh, mental effects of acuity and cognition and recall and this kind of thing. If I'm correct. Yeah. Uh, okay. And and then um, you you know you move from that into partnering with some Oxford researchers who were doing some interesting things with ketone esters um, on, on a project or projects with DARPA. Now, DARPA is the Defense Advanced Research Projects Agency. That's the, that's the agency uh, within the U.S. government or within the U.S. military uh, that makes all of the futuristic, wild stuff, um, you know, from, you know, uh, br brain links to a computer, through to I think they, they were they were the ones experimenting with the first uh, dri driverless cars. I mean they're they're the cutting edge of the cutting edge, and they partner with private industry, right? So so so, but what is DARPA doing? What is that? What is that very advanced military agency doing? Looking into ketone esters. Uh, yeah, great question. Well. Part of the mandate, I think, is kind of moonshot technologies. Um, and obviously the warfighter, him or herself, is an important asset. We call a soldier or a sailor or a marine an, an asset, but um, they're a part of that uh, defense capability. So anything that can enhance metabolism and performance of that service number is of interest to but, you know, potentially towards uh, the US DOD. Um, so there was a program called Metabolic Dominance that actually is looking at different technologies to enhance metabolism. And the ketone ester was one of the main projects funded out of that umbrella, that, that mm -hmm. Metabolic Dominance program with, that was uh, kicked off by DARPA. That's amazing because, I mean, if you just think about that, if you know that the military has a super soldier program, you know that, um, you know, you look into the research, you see that there's a substrate um, that the human body uses that if you were somehow able to manufacture it and the body could use it uh, exogenously uh, and that it would give you um, the, the level of optimization that uh, would interest DARPA, uh, then, hey, uh, you know, guys and gals out there, I mean, that's a signal. Do you need... 
I mean, you need to take this ketosis and ketogenic approach to your nutrition extremely seriously because if the military is looking into what it can do for their soldiers, imagine for what, I mean, a very low cost, what you could do for your own health, your own optimization, your own metabolism. And, you know, I, so I guess, yeah, there's been a ton of research into developing exogenous ketones for, I mean, everything from uh, what we just discussed and, you know, optimize your metabolism uh, for a soldier to potentially solving neurologic disorders um, through to being, you know, a performance enhancing super fuel for athletes. However, making one <laughs> that the body can use and that actually works. I know because I've been tracking this for the, you know, for years now, trying, you know, looking into, you know, does this actually work? I remember Peter Atia you know, kind of getting his hands on something that was early days experimental. You know this, right? Um, yeah. Drinking it and it tasted, he, he kind of called it rocket fuel. It tasted like literal, I mean, like not yeah. rocket fuel, right? Like what rocket fuel would taste like. So yeah. actually producing something that would work that doesn't taste like gasoline or is even close to affordable, by the way, yeah. um, enough to manufacture for mass consumption has been an incredible struggle, but you have done it. And, um, you know, that, so tell me about that because, um, you know, I see on, um, in, 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 uh, in your business that I could buy a ketone ester drink. Um, it's, it's still, you know, I mean, expensive is, is relative, but compared to what it could have cost, uh, three years ago, um, you know, the, the, the scale at which you're producing it, $89, I think for like three servings of, which would be 25 grams of ketone ester per serving, um, is still for the average person expensive, but so, but it apparently this would put you into a deep rapid state of ketosis. Now, um, I would assume that the reason you'd want to do that is for, if you're a high performance athlete. Um, if you're going to go for a, if you're going to run a marathon, uh, tomorrow, or if you want to train for a, tri a triathlon, I would, I would personally be doing one of these before every training session. But is that what that ketone ester that you make is, is for? Who's it for? What's it for? And what does it really do? Yeah, that's, uh, a, a number of questions to unpack here. And I really need to give credit to you know, bringing this down to a scale that is possible to be marketed. It's still expensive. It's still super expensive, right? I mean, even at, you know, $30 a pop, that's, you know, I, I, I wish I could be drinking them every single day. Right. Um, and we, and we, I, I don't drink my own supply, you know, like, <laughs> like it's too expensive for me. Um, but it's, it was really been a, a massive team effort, a number of researchers, uh, you know, really kicked off by uh, Professor Karen Clark, who runs a large lab at Oxford, and Dr. Richard Veach, who recently actually passed. He was a lab chief at the NIH. They yeah. had co-invented the ketone ester back in the early 2000s. Um, and there's been so many researchers and co-authors that have shepherded all the clinical research to show safety, first of all, and then show efficacy in some of these indications. And then on the manufacturing side, I still work very closely with Professor Clark to uh, scale this up and get the volumes and, and, and get the chemical engineering to a place where we can start manufacturing metric tons of the stuff. And to give you a sense of where this all initially started, 
it would have cost $1,000 per gram of ketoester. Wow. And some of the developments with, with synthetic biology, so you can use genetically engineered E. coli to ferment sugar into some of the precursors as one of the recent technological engineering feats that unlocked uh, some of the supply chain cost savings of how you can manufacture this at scale. And maybe the tease into why it was so expensive is that in traditional, well, um, if you look at organic molecules, many organic molecules have uh, chirality. They have different forms that have the same chemical formula, but they're mirror images of each other. So if you look at your hands, right, we each your left and your right hand have four fingers, one thumb, right? It's the same chemical formula, but they do not overlay. Wow. That same chirality property uh, exists for a number of organic molecules. And one of the organic molecules that has chiral, uh, has chirality is beta-hydroxybutyrate, BHB, the main ketone body. And interestingly, your body only endogenously produces D-beta-hydroxybutyrate. And there is an L form of L-beta-hydroxybutyrate. Uh, when you run a synthetic chemical reaction, a chem like the chemicals don't care. Right. They just turn into a what's called a racemic mix, 50-50 D and L. And because there is the same exact atomic weight, it's very, very hard to separate D and L. But we care about D versus L in biology because your body uses D, BHP, and L, uh, BHP, it's not really naturally produced at very high levels. Okay. So uh, there's different interpretations of what L, BHP does in the body. Um, some researchers will claim that it might be toxic, it could be really bad for you. Some researchers say that it is actually not that bad. It, it hangs around in your system for a little bit, but then you pee it out. Mm -hmm. um, and some researchers actually think it could be actually useful for maybe longevity signaling because it does because it does last longer in the system. So there's open science on what L exactly does, um, but I think the most conservative and the most data driven point of view here is that DBHB is what is produced by your liver naturally in ketogenesis, mm -hmm. and uh, that's the form that we care about. And that's and selecting only D is is a very expensive process. But if you have a synthetically engineered E. coli that produces only D, well, you save a lot of manufacturing and purification costs along the way. So that's a little bit of the history and story of why it costs so much, what are the subtleties behind the different little forms of beta-hydroxybutyrate and why it matters, and why the ketone ester that we have is pretty interesting because it's D beta-hydroxybutyrate in an ester form. Um, so what is it useful for? Well, the best clinical data that exists was, and what got me excited about it initially was athletic performance use cases. Uh, there was a award-winning paper in cell metabolism in 2016 showing that enhanced, uh, endurance performance of trained cyclists by two, three percent. Um, and and then, by what percent? Two to three percent. So this is like 500 meters, 400, 500 meters in a 30-minute time trial. I mean, that's that. I mean, people might not understand, but that's. I mean, two to three percent at an elite level makes yeah. a world record. Yeah, that's big. Yeah. So I think 
sports performance is like one of those interesting fields where, yeah, I think that's exactly right. For the lay person, it's like, I don't know, like I have a bad day, like my performance drops 50%, right? It's just like, but if you talk to Olympic caliber athletes, world-class athletes, they're very, very consistent. And it's very hard to enhance and to increase by that kind of range. Um, so, I mean, that's like the top line head result, but I, I think some of the interesting parts around it is that there was a reduction in lactate production. Uh, so you produce less lactic acid. There's interesting subsequent research showing that it improves inflammation and recovery after intense mm-hmm. lots of exercise. And we've been working with a number of Tour de France teams uh, over the last couple of years. It's kind of unfortunate the tour is canceled this year. Yep. Um, but um, that's been uh, very cool to support some of the top teams and see the riders do really well uh, because the initial studies essentially were almost optimized for a Tour de France-like scenario where it's a quite specific event where it's not really normal to bike 60 to 120 miles a day, you know, for like 30 days straight. Right. Uh, um, so, uh, uh, yeah, so it, it was interesting from a, for initially from an endurance perspective, but as people had had more opportunity to use ketone ester as a research tool, I think there's a lot of exciting, uh, research being done currently and, uh, well, not currently because all the clinical human trials are stopped, but hopefully that we're kind of in progress and our, and people are, are contemplating, um, and it reflects on some of the earlier topics. There's a lot of excitement around neurological conditions. Yep. Um, again, too early and, and way too speculative to make any sort of claims here. And mm-hmm. I'm not going to be talking about the product itself, but talk about this, the science and what the data exists. There's a, a great uh, case, published case study from Dr. Mary Newport uh, using yep. ketoester drinks that showed essentially reversal of Alzheimer's symptoms. And the main mechanism of action suggested there is that for types of Alzheimer's uh, and some people nickname forms of Alzheimer's as type three diabetes, is that is there a glucose uptake dysfunction in neurons? Is there sort of like an insulin resistance in the brain? Well, the cool thing with ketones is that it does not require insulin. It's a very, a completely separate metabolic pathway than glucose. So maybe what's happening with an Alzheimer's patient is that the brain is just being starved with energy. It just can't get glucose in. And you keep, you keep eating food, you, you do IV drips of more glucose. There's something wrong with the uptake function in terms of glucose can't get in the cell. You might have glucose floating around, but whether insulin or PDH pyruvate, dehydrogenase, there's something wrong with getting it in. Uh, what if you can get it in with another uh, route? And ketones is that other route. So that would be the mechanism to be there. There's been some early look investigating Parkinson's, uh, and that has to do with uh, the redox pairs in the in, in the Krebs cycle. There's different ratios of NADH, NAD plus, NADPH, NADP uh, uh, H plus. That I think is getting more awareness. People have probably heard of NAD, NAD boosters, mm-hmm. right? Nicotinamide riboside. Uh, nicotinamide mononucleotide as popular supplements for longevity. Um, and why people think those are interesting is that because they provide the substrate or, or the redox pairs 
for the Krebs cycle. And the Krebs cycle is what you learn in high school biology, which is the cycle in the mitochondria that produces ATP. Um, so I think what people are realizing now is that you want to make sure you have enough of the NAD pool, like the amount of nicotinamide in there to have enough of these redox pairs. But I think what people are realizing is that the ratio is also very important as well. And ketones uh, manipulate that ratio in a preferable way for some of these conditions potentially. Uh, so that's exciting news on the therapeutic potential. Um, but those are, I, I would say, just more speculative. I think just getting more back into reality, there's a bunch of good research coming out of Jonathan Little's group at uh, University of British Columbia showing that a ketone ester drink just acutely drops blood sugar. It increases insulin sensitivity. So if you do an oral glucose tolerance test, which is a 75 gram sugar bomb, right. and, you, and you see your sugar and insulin curves, if you have a ketone ester drink uh, before one compared to a placebo, your glycemic response is much more reduced. That's incredible. So I think there's like interesting applications for uh, glycemic response and potentially appetite control. Uh, one of my good friends, uh, Brianna Stubbs, she published a paper on a ketone ester drink suppressing ghrelin, which is the appetite hormone. So there's all these interesting observations, data points, that show benefit of ketones that kind of mimics and, 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 and replicates what you might surmise to a ketogenic diet, right? Because I think when you look at a ketogenic diet, there is like these kind of observations or claims that, yeah, like I'm just more satiated. I'm not as hungry when I'm eating a ketogenic diet versus a standard Western diet, even though that like the calories are the same. So I think some of these things that you're seeing in with a ketone experiment seems to match up really well with the N equals 10,000 anecdata, anecdotes that well, all these folks are kind of reporting with the ketogenic diet. So it's really cool to see uh, the grassroots observations of individuals just reporting in, being thoughtful, being citizen scientists, marry up with what's being published in uh, formal literature. So those are just a little bit of a snapshot of what I think ketoneses could be exciting about. And then that's like not to say there's a lot of research looking at longevity, um, cognitive performance, you know, we still uh, work with uh, the Department of Defense on, on, on research as well. So just assessing, you know, different applications for a number of applications. So it's, it's just a cool, it's a fun project to be a part of. Well, that's, yeah, I mean, that's, that's amazing. And I know also they've been using it. I think Do, um, uh, Dom D'Agostino has been working with, um, uh, with the Defense Department as well. Uh, I think with the seals uh, in order to be able to dot how far, I mean, you can, apparently you can dive a lot deeper uh, and not have the issue. I forgot what the issue is when, you know, when you, when you dive, when you go too deep, uh, the human body can only go uh, so far down without causing potential neurological issues. Yeah. Right. The issue is oxygen toxicity. So as you go deeper and deeper, you have to be breathing oxygen. And at, at a certain pressure and certain depth and certain amount of high oxygen, you just get seizures. So it looks like if you have uh, acetoacetate diester, so a different form of a ketone ester, it right. seems to suppress that. So yeah, so I think um, it, there's just a lot of exciting research to be done here. I think um, 
you know, one of his students and a, and a, and a friend, Andrew Kutnick, I think also did a great, this is a very recent paper showing that the acetate diester was able to uh, reduce uh, cancer cachexia or uh, muscle wasting in right. animal model. So uh, and I think that kind of replicates kind of our observations with keep with the beta hydroxybutyrate monoester where there seems to be an anti-catabolic effect with ketones. And um, that's that's powerful. And on top of that, massive anti-inflammatory effects. I can tell you, I mean, I had surgery a bunch of years ago. Um, I was in deep ketosis. Um, and when I was recovering, I didn't break. The, the diet still was, I, I wouldn't even let them put an IV bag uh, with dextrose in it. I wouldn't allow them to do that. So they did that for me. And um, my CRP numbers, which they were measuring because after surgery, that's how they see, you know, how you're yep. doing with inflammation. My CRP uh, number was, they couldn't believe how low it was. Yeah. So, I mean, if you think about all of the scientific literature and the studies being done for, and on top of that, the anecdotal evidence, I mean, it's almost like, you know, wake up people. You've got to, you've got to jump on this, you know, on the ketosis bandwagon. You got to get into, you know, you got to get into a ketogenic state. You got to have a ketogenic diet because the optimization um, for a, for human performance is outlandish. And, you know, you're certainly on the cutting edge of a lot of that. I know your company does a lot of other supplements as well to help with the ketogenic diet, but also nootropics, brain boosting yeah. uh, supplements as well. You got a lot of interesting things going on there. Um, and I guess um, I'm really curious uh, because again, back to being inspired because I want to be in ketosis. If it's doing all those other things, imagine what it would do for you simply at work in your career and you know, in your attempt to be a successful entrepreneur or even a successful sales professional, what, what it could do for you. But back to this inspiration piece, like, you know, you're doing like super cool stuff. Um, you're an entrepreneur, you're running an incredibly um, uh, interesting nutrition company. What drives you? I think curiosity drives me. Um, I think it's one of the, I, I, I was thinking about this and when I was just like self-reflecting a few years back. And I think like, again, maybe this is the engineer nerd in me trying to, you know, make it too formal, but you know, there's this notion of engineering that you use an objective function, right? What an objective function is kind of, how do you calculate what your goals are? And how do you optimize towards that? So um, for me, I think what captures that notion the best is how do I keep and maintain a childlike curiosity for as much of what I do for as long as possible? And I just remember, you know, I think we can maybe hopefully recall when we're ch children and we're playing with toys and you would just get engrossed with like playing with your Legos or opening up a watch or I don't know, playing like, you know, making a story with your dolls or, or whatnot. But I think there was just so much fun and novelty and creativity and just like freedom that we all had in this childlike state. And I think for better or for worse, our structure of society kind of jams us into boxes. Mm -hmm. and, and I think that's just what efficiency of a capital system kind of forces us to do, 
right? It, it kind of forces specialization of roles. And to be specialized and competitive, you have to be really good at this, uh, a few things. And I don't think that's a really a natural state of where people want to be, right? Like, I'm sure you, you're a podcast host, but I'm sure you also are a partner, an athlete, you know, a number of things that you've done in, in your life as well, right? And I think that's, that's everyone, right? Like, no one's just a grocery person, right? right? Like, in their head, they're an artist, they're a, 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 a historian, they're a gardener, right? And, and I think my, so, so to me, it's like, okay, how do I set up my life and my goals where I can have that creativity and that freedom to explore like all kinds, all parts of your, your, your natural curiosities. Um, so that's the motivation. It's just, I'm genuinely interested in learning. Like it's just fun. Like it's great having this conversation because it's just, you get to think about things that you might have not thinking about, you know, just by day to day humdrum. Um, and you get to, you know, especially in my line of work, it's just super awesome to talk to world-class athletes, researchers, folks that have served in, 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 in the defense of our country. And it's just like cool to learn from them. And, and it's maybe even cooler to be able to help and give advice and be of help to them, right? Like that would be even better. Um, so yeah, so just to, you know, round that thought off, it just, to me, it's just like, I just wanna be having fun and just keep keeping that curiosity alive. I think uh, if, I, if there's any message, just like don't let that fire of curiosity just get snuffed out. I feel like I'm sure, you know, listeners to the Alpha Human Podcast are probably folks more geared towards, yeah, like I want to be learning. I want to be a better version of myself. And that's a fire that I think is hard to maintain. Um, and something that you, you have to practice and, and keep. You know, you know that's that's the thing it is a lot of things that people assume well he he he's he or she is just passionate but actually you have to feed passion like a fire and and you're saying look an incredible thing um is to be a curious person but it's so easy to fall into the the lane that we're given or the you know the trap the box that we fall into and we lose that that childlike sense of curiosity. It's something you have to work at is what you're saying. And I think that's super powerful. Um, so so what do you, Jeff, what do you see coming down the road, right? You're a curious person. You're on the cutting edge. Like if we were to shoot out a decade, what do you see coming down the road from a nutritional perspective? Like what, what, does 10 years from now look like maybe your company's making it or may, you know, or maybe these advances are already in play now, but you know, how will we be optimizing ourselves with supplements 10 years from now? Yeah. Great question. Especially since no one saw COVID just blowing out everyone's expectation of what 2020 was going to look like. <laughs> so I will be very unmeasured here and still try to make a 10 year forecast here. Um, I think that ketones will be thought as a, a standalone proper fourth macronutrient, right? So ketones basically in, in normal nutrition or traditional uh, nutrition is just simply thought of as a byproduct of uh, one in a carbohydrate restricted state. Well, now you can consume ketones 
directly and uh, they have calories and those calories produce ATP and they also have very interesting signaling properties that are very different from fat, protein, carbohydrate. So my sense is that there will be just, just a broader palette of colors of what foods could be, right? If you think about all our foods today, they're just like a remixed combination of fat, protein, carbohydrate in various configurations. Uh, what if you could have a fourth color in there? Ketones could be in the mix, changing up our dietary composition. Um, I think that everyone will have experience, if not are, con are constantly on a continuous biomarker reading for not just glucose, but things like C-reactive protein that measures your inflammation, uh, things like ketones, things like LDL cholesterol, HDL cholesterol, triglycerides. I think some of these things that we have annual blood tests for our right. lipid cholesterol, in, in that annual checkup is like if we're actually on top of ourselves. Because I, when I was in college, I didn't do blood tests. Like I was like, I don't want to. That's that's scary. Right. Um, and now it's like, but like after getting kind of into this weird world of caring about human performance, yeah, it, you know, it's kind of like a sneak peek under the hood. What what's my metabolism like? I, I just, you need, we want snapshots of this. Um, and in the future, we will not just have snapshots. You will have a continuous real-time feed of these important metabolic markers. So you would have real-time feedback. Okay, uh, a piece of salmon, how does that affect, affect my blood sugar? Uh, a piece of steak. You know, I think when you talk to carnivores who claim crazy kind of autoimmune responses to like a, like a pepper, uh, you, maybe you, could, you could actually measure that, right? Maybe you could see inflammation happening. You could see some of the measures of leaky guts, right? Um, right. And then you, 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 can, you can actually square the observation. Yes, I'm not just psychosomatic here. Like I actually have some sort of reaction towards this food. Um, and we can all be much more quantitative to it. So I think that would be a second uh, important, I think, reality that we'll, we'll see around the corner. And I know a number of entrepreneurs who are trying to dem democratize and make it easier for people to get CGMs, right? The continuous glucose monitors are typically prescribed for type 1 yes. diabetics because yep. it's very important for them to measure their, to keep their blood sugar in that specific range. But um, more and more consumers are getting access to them, right? Like I was playing around with them four years ago, and I think more and more people have kind of have heard of these things and are curious about trying and it's like kind of fun to run experiments oh like what does my blood sugar look like when i'm eating a pineapple versus an apple versus a grape like what is my body uh, uh more adapted towards right and does that uh well popularized uh cell paper from israel showing that the same foods uh people have very different glycemic responses from and that makes sense you know we all have a little bit of different genetics that has different predispositions to certain types of reactions to certain foods. Like that's the spice of life. We all have different variations. Right. So we will have our own real-time data feed for that. So we will know exactly a personalized dashboard of what's, what we can tolerate well and what we don't tolerate as well as our friends. Um, Powerful. And then let's, and I think, uh, and this will be just interesting from a, I would say a regulatory policy, political perspective, but I think, you know, genetic engineering, CRISPR, like direct manipulation of DNA 
um, it's one of those things that is going to be done, right? Someone's going to do it, right? Like uh, the, the the scientist who CRISPR those two uh, twins. Yeah. Yep. Someone's already CRISPRed humans, right? So he's, he's not, not going to be the one and only. Um, that'll just be an interesting part uh, part of history to see how we as a society figure out how we want to do this and distribute that technology. Like my sense is that you don't really stop technology. It's just like there's too much motivation to want to manipulate our ourselves. And it's gonna start with therapeutic use cases, right? It's gonna start with, oh, we're gonna correct someone with terminal cancer. Mm-hmm. And oh, that's pretty safe. I think be comfortable with that. And that 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 uh, that moral outrage is gonna slide for us like, oh, maybe it's not that big of a deal if I want blue eyes or green eyes. Uh, maybe it's not a big deal if I want to be an inch taller. It's not that big of a deal. And then we're in the, entering a completely new universe. So I think 10 years is a bit on the early side for that, but that would be definitely on the bubble where I think uh, some of these things, especially on the therapeutic side, will be, will be, will be available. So it's, it, it, it's amazing. Um, and I see all of that coming and more, of course. Then you start getting into that whole, um, that, that whole concept of post-human world and what that looks like. But, um, you know, these advances uh, are... Uh, incredible, especially when you think of if it can be done at scale and it's accessible to, you know, the average person. Um, once that happens, you know, then then it's then it's then then everything becomes game changer. So, so it's you know, how do these things scale? And you know, what is it affordable? And that that's where that's you know, getting it right first. It's just like the ketone ester was a thousand dollars a gram. Right now, now we're able to get it, you know, down to a place where it's affordable for, you know, pretty much most people if they want to experiment with it. Some quick fire questions for you. All right. Um, how much sleep do you get a night? I I'm religious about my sleep. I try to get eight eight hours of sleep. Eight, eight as maybe hopefully I don't know. Sometimes no eight eight is eight is pretty standard. Yeah. That's amazing. That's amazing. So, so, and that, I guess that speaks to, so then you've got to say to yourself, okay, I've got to be incredibly productive during the hours I do spend at work. Right. So how do I, how do I enhance that productivity, which may be where that's where your nootropic uh, supplements come in. Um, Interesting. Eight hours. Um, Okay. Um, How often do you fast? About, um, so I guess, I usually eat a pretty time-restricted window every single day. So I typically do a 16-8. So just like kind of two large meals a day. Uh, but I'll do a longer fast. I'll do a longer fast um, about once a week. I've actually been fasting less over this COVID scenario because I've been doing uh, MRF every single day since uh, 28 days ago. So a Murph workout, have you heard of what, what a Murph is? No, pl- t- tell me, what is that? Uh, it's a CrossFit workout named after uh, one of the Navy SEALs lost. Michael Murphy. Yeah, in Operation Red Wings. Um, and uh, the workout is a one-mile run, 100 pull-ups, 200 push-ups, 300 squats, and then one-mile run. And I've done 
So I did, I've done 28 of those in a row in 28 days. Powerful. Powerful. So, so I'm not fasting. I'm not doing longer fasts because I'm just expending quite a bit more energy than I would normally okay. do when I'm like working. Yeah. Cause I, I, I read somewhere that you were, you were typically fasting three days per week at one point. Yeah. I think when I'm traveling more, much more and much more sedentary where my physical volume isn't as high, mm-hmm. then you should, be, you should consider shifting your uh, calorie consumption. Like I just like am more productive. Don't, I don't need to eat that much. Like it's just almost like a tempo of what I'm trying to tell my body to do. Right. So when you do eat, um, what percentage, what's your ratio of protein to fat or fat to protein? Um, I would say my diet is very centered around animal protein or mm-hmm. animal product, like, like steaks, fish, seafood. Um, uh, I've done blocks of carnivore diets. Um, I think it's an interesting approach to nutrition. Um, but I'll supplement, not supplement, but I'll consume, you know, uh, like vegetables. Um, and essentially I, I, I find myself being so metabolically flexible that even if I have, you know, 20, 30, 40 grams of carbohydrate after like a long workout, I'll very quickly get back into ketosis. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, the, to be honest, I haven't been tracking, you know, I'm not, I don't food journal anymore, you know, like basically when I was like very, very rigorous, I would test my ketones three times a day to see exactly where my ketones were. So I just, so my left middle finger was like sacrificed to my own <laughs> science. Right. Cause that was like the finger that was kind of the, the, the one for offering. Um, where I think I, I, I no longer need that kind of fidelity. I, I, I think, I think at a certain point, like you just realize you, you got to make it intuitive and that's how you make it actually integral into your life. Um, mm. So for me, it's, you know, going for fattier cuts of meat. So I think if you look at a typical ribeye, it's much typical fat, fat content. Um, so I'd probably say that, uh, I would be on uh, what would be kind of on a more modified ketogenic diet with perhaps higher protein content than like the 15. I would say it's probably closer to 30%, 25 to 30% protein, maybe 50% fat and the remainder in, in carbohydrate. Mm-hmm. So yeah, that's, that's interesting because I too have gone on a journey of, I, at one point I was almost therapeutic ketogenic, like yeah literally like 85% fats, right? 15% protein, um, no carbs. I haven't, you know, I I haven't played with carbs in in four years. Um, And that's when I was experiencing a lot of that superhuman um, effects. Uh, But slowly I've gone on a journey where, uh, and at the time I was eating salads with a lot of oil and nuts. Um, Slowly I've gone on a journey where, yeah, myself as well, over the past year, year and a half, has been primarily carnivore um, and getting my fats mostly from those sources, right? So whether it's eggs or, or, or red meat, um, that's where I'm, I'm getting my fat these days as opposed to having load, load up on a bunch of butter and oils. Yep. Um, so that's really interesting. Um, 
I, so another question for you, uh, a bit quick fire. Um, so, you know, I guess with the strategies you currently employ with all that, you know, uh, about supplementation and these and biohacks, um, as well as some of those advances likely to come that you mentioned, how long do you envision living? I mean, I know (laughs) Asprey believes, you know, he's going to live to 180, uh, Peter Diamandis has set a goal of 700, but only because he believes that if he can live to like 150 to 200, then he's going to have access to like some of these genetic and nanotech solutions that'll really push the envelope beyond anything we've considered. But what about you, Jeff? I mean, how long do you believe you will live and do you even have a specific goal age wise? No, I think it's, it's, I think people are trying to make little, you know, sound bites with it. Like, come on, okay, show me your, show me your math, Mr. Asprey or Mr. Diamandis. Um, look, like I want to live as long as I can. Like, don't get me wrong, I, I'd love to live a long, healthy, happy life as well. I think all of us would want a little bit that optionality more, right? Mm-hmm. I, we could all kind of end it if we really wanted to. Let's not, let's not be morbid. Um, I think it's the way I measure it is are you doing stuff that makes you happy on a day-to-day basis, right? Like that is, I think the, the true metric of a life well lived. Like if you're living towards a thousand and doing some shit that you hate, I don't know, like right. I probably not want to live that life. So um, I think, yeah, I, I think an arbitrary age goal is just kind of flippant and kind of a kind of a cheesy thing to talk about. I think it's like, obviously, I think both you and I would agree, let's live as healthfully and as productively as we can every single day. Right. And that means I'm going to live towards, I don't know, 50, because I get hit by a bus in, 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 in you know, some in, in 20 years, then that sucks. Um, or we all, you know get killed, you know, by the end of the month because COVID mutates and kills everyone. Like, you know, it's just like, there's so much uncertainty in the world where I, 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 one of the quotes I like a lot is, let's just keep, like in in, in times of crazy uncertainty um, and and to focus on things that you can really solve and and, and be proactive on is keep the world small, right? Like if we are in a position to help the broader universe, absolutely, like put the good vibes out there. But in this case, in terms of like, what is my, maximum lifespan i don't know um but what i can't control is what my day-to-day lifestyle and practices are yeah um control the controllables right because anything can happen and i'm I, i'm i'm with you i'm a big believer in in quality of life who yeah. cares if we, if we can live till 120 if you if if your last 20 years are kind of That's dementia cool. yeah. Yeah. yeah then it's you know it, it, it's it, it's about quality of life so yeah very strong um what are you, what are you, so two more, two last questions for you. You've been very kind with your time, by the way. Thank you so much. Um, what are you reading? What do you read? What are you reading? Besides, besides, <laughs> besides all the studies, right? Like, what do you read? I like reading science fiction. Um, so definitely a sci-fi nerd. I think it's just cool to escape into a parallel universe sometimes to see like what uh, different authors have in terms of what the future kind of unfolds. It's, it's just, yeah, that, that, again, that, kind of like that curiosity, right? Like what is a parallel future universe kind of look like? Mm. Um, and I actually recently ordered a couple books. Um, one 
it's kind of one is more related towards uh, psychology. It was a, I, I can't recall a title right now, but it's kind of just describing how interpersonal transactional conversations can go and some of the patterns that people have observed. Kind mm -hmm. of interesting. Um, and then second book was uh, uh, Roger Penrose's book around um, kind of constructing the mathematics that you want that kind of ground up in terms of understanding uh, physics and, and, and hopefully moving towards like a grand unified theory of physics. So been uh, um, kind of, you know, one of the things that I was interested in and I thought I was going to study was physics. My dad was a, a, a physicist. Um, he, was really? he did his, it was, he dropped out of his PhD at UCLA in the physics program. So I always had a, had a, had a, interest and love for uh, just mathematically describing the universe around us. Very interesting. What, what motivates you? Um, I think that just goes back to that curiosity. I think uh, it's fun, like doing and experiencing interesting things is inherently motivating. And, and, and maybe it's just like, I think that, there's like an argument, why are you novelty seeking? I don't know. It's just like, I'd rather do some interesting stuff that I haven't done before than the same stuff that I have done before. Like, I don't like that. That might just be an axiom. That might just be my neurotransmitters being burnt out of the same pathways. Um, I'm okay with that. Like <laughs> that, that seems to be a, a decent algorithm for me to just experience new things and create new opportunities. Final question. I'm going to sneak one more in. Yeah. Um, so for, but for the budding entrepreneur that's listening or for the, um, the sales professional who's looking to make the kind of sales you were making when you realize, wait a second, if we, if we scale this, that's a million dollars a year. This is a business. Um, to just the, the individual that wants to strive for something greater, um, what, what advice would you give? I would ask them to think about two things. One is actually having a narrative of tactic, tactically where they want to be. I think when you ask people like, what do you even want in life? People will just say like some generic answer, like I want to be rich. Right. Like, okay, how, doing what? Right. And, and like, if you don't have a path to just this nebulous value, I just want more dollars and digits in a bank account. That's not, you cannot work towards that. So my, my, my recommendation is like, actually think about where are some like actual things that you want? Like, is that, you want your boss's job? Like, do you actually want that job? Like whose job do you actually want? What does that person do? Like actually articulate this in a way that's actually approachable. So I think it's important to actually get some definitions of what you want. Not that like, oh, I want to be famous and rich. It's like, yeah, everyone does. I want to be super attractive too, right? Like, cool. It's just like, what is something that you can actually tangibly grasp and study and read and learn about? Whether that's, oh, I want to be like Jeff Bezos. Okay, maybe you study him. What did he do? What did he, what were his insights? Uh, what did he do earlier in his career? So you can find some of these patterns. That would be what I recommend. So like actually have... Uh, maybe not necessarily a physical manifestation like a person, but some actual manifestation of what 
you want to be doing. And it could be your boss's job. It could be that, that simple, that, that next step. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, and that leads to the second point, which is, yeah, just break it down into just tactical problems. I think when it's like, oh, I want to be like a billionaire, Elon Musk inventor guy. Mm-hmm. It's like, okay, how do you get there from being like a college student or, you know, a sales guy that's working a nine to five right now? It's like, yeah, that, that's, you, you can't do it. It's like, it's too many steps. So it goes back to keeping the world small. Like, okay, um, actually know some stuff about some area. I think most people aren't actually deep in anything. They're just very generalist or very surface level. Um, to actually be of value to the world, you actually need to know more than the, on some subject than the rest of the world. Like, are you gonna be the world expert on anything? Probably not, but you can definitely be a world expert enough to 90% of the people. And like, that's kind of like what you actually need to put yourself towards. So again, it's like, why are people successful? Well, it's, they have spent so much time or they're very talented to be really, really good and knowledgeable on certain certain areas. Mm -hmm. And they are exploiting that knowledge in a way that is useful for other people. And I think it's like, okay, what are the tactical steps to get that for yourself? And yeah, it's like for, for podcasts, it's like, all right, got to make great content one at a time, right? Like we all wish we had Joe Rogan experience level audience, <laughs> but it's like, okay, what can you do to get there? Are we going to cry that we don't have that audience? Or it's like, okay, the tactical thing is that I'm going to do a great podcast every single week or every single, you know, every couple of days and be consistent. Mm. And I think it's that, so, so, so to, to round off that thought, it's actually be consistent and actually get experience and knowledge in a specific area. And then to actually have a vision of where you're going. And they can't be like some big, I want to be a rich person. Powerful stuff, Jeff. Powerful stuff. Thank you so much uh, for spending this time with us. Uh, A lot to take away. So many powerful things that anyone listening to this show can actually make use of to really optimize their lives and change their direction uh, or just simply give themselves an incredible uh, boost to really uh, maximize the, the opportunities that they have, whether it was the advice you just gave or whether it's getting into ketosis, whether it's fasting. Um, I, I implore everyone to really seek out um, how you can utilize these biohacks that are available to anyone to anyone, not the, not the wild sci-fi stuff, but what, what we spoke about today, Jeff, is, a, is available to anyone that just puts a little bit of thought into it and a little bit of research after this and then uh, goes find you, maybe listens to your podcast, uh, which is a wealth of knowledge, by the way, uh, and or uh, looks into your products. So I'll, I'll end on this note. Where can uh, those that listen to this show, where can they find you? Uh, where can they find your company? Uh, let, let us know uh, your details. Yeah. So the shout outs to check us out is hvmn.com. We have all, we're on all the social platforms. So at hvmn on Instagram, Twitter, Facebook. And then if you want to follow my personal updates, I'm pretty active on both Twitter and Instagram. And that's at Jeffrey Wu with a G, G-E-O-F-F-R-E-Y-W-O-O. And then of course the podcast, uh, HVMN, Healthy and Modern Nutrition Podcast. 
you'll see us out there every week, every couple, uh, maybe twice a week. Amazing. Absolutely amazing. Uh, again, it, it was a pleasure speaking with you, Jeff. I wish you guys tremendous success. Uh, again, uh, you're doing cutting edge stuff and we need more people not being, uh, you know, a, uh, a trend follower or doing derivative uh, work or just, you know, being a carbon copy or a cookie cutter of every other supplement company or software company or solution provider that's out there. We need more individuals like yourself and your company that are on the cutting edge, breaking the mold and bringing really unique solutions to life uh, for people. So thank you very much. No, thank you for the kind words, Lawrence.